arguing with an engineer is like wrestling with a pig in mud. Hmm. After a while, you realize the pig is enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues. Uh, this is episode 102, and I will be your host today. I'm James Gray II. With me today are Katrina Owen. Hello. David Brady. Hello, and welcome. Hello, hello. And today we have special guest, Joseph Wilk. Joseph, since this is your first time on, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, As you said, my name is Joseph Wilk. Um, I've been messing around with Ruby for the last 10 years or so, and um, have been doing a lot of work and looking into rhetoric and how that helps us in development. So I guess I'll start with the super obvious question. Rhetoric is a new programming language that we're all going to be using soon. <laughs> I thought it was a gem. Yes. It's and the it's, new program. It's, it's the, the head language. It's, it's actually the heteric gem so that you can do Ruby dash R heteric so that it says dash rhetoric. It's this um, crazy programming language called English. Whoa. <laughs> oh. mm. This episode just got complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your, your talk is excellent, and we will definitely put a link to it in the show notes, and that's what made us want to talk to you. Can you give us, like, uh, the rough outline? What, what did you talk about and why? Sure. I guess the motivation was that something's been kind of, like, lurking in my head about companies I've worked in and just seeing how people interact, and I haven't really been able to kind of connect it. And I started doing some research into rhetoric and reading around that sort of stuff. And it all started to kind of connect how um, I think rhetoric plays an important part in writing code and discussing code and trying to decide about which ideas to apply. And in fact, like the, the key part of development is communication and talking about ideas and deciding what to do. And this is a, to me like a huge kind of take out of rhetoric which unfortunately has kind of died as a thing. So I don't think many people are taught rhetoric anymore. So it's kind of a danger sometimes it being used against you or um, you not not really being able to utilize it for yourself. So my, my goal is to make help developers communicate better, I guess. So where does rhetoric come from? What is the history? Like who made it up? Yeah, um, so the Greeks um, are the fathers of rhetoric, I guess. Um, they simply sat around all day and did a lot of talking and philosophy. And through this, they started to kind of come up with these ideas about, um, I guess, discussion, a lot of discussion in Greek society. And from this, they started to write theory. Um, Socrates write theory about, um, how to, how to have a discussion. And what's interesting, it was generic enough such that it could be applied throughout the ages and the initial book. Um, that was written on rhetoric by the Greeks is actually kind of very much still applicable to lots of different fields. And lots of people have added on to this and added additional theory to it. But it's actually a couple of very simple ideas um, mixed in some Greek names. So is it true that the amphora was invented just so that these guys standing around talking would have a water cooler to stand around and talking? <laughs> yeah, the water cooler is a good analogy. Um, definitely. Uh, I think it, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but I always reference this that, um, the Greeks always used to read out loud, not in their heads. And this is because they valued that they were scared if they didn't speak, they wouldn't, they would lose their ability to argue and discourse. And it was that important to them. It was like one of the so, ideals. So everybody thinks Socrates is smart, but his, he totally moves his lips when he reads. <laughs> yes, exactly. He reads out loud. He can't do Excellent. it in his head. And he's probably a better communicator than any of us will ever be. So I keep throwing rhetoric at my computer, but it doesn't seem to be improving my code. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, yeah. No, I, I guess what I mean is, seriously, why is this so important to us as programmers? Right. Um, so when you write, I mean, like, there's different levels to this, but when you write code, um, as we kind of know, code is actually more read than written. 
So what does it mean for someone to read your code? What does it mean for someone to read your tests? To me, there is an aspect of not just expressing a solution to a problem, but explaining, making your code readable, making it possible for someone to understand not just the solution, but why you've chosen that solution. So when someone comes to that code, you're almost persuading them that you've, this code is a good way to solve this problem at this time. So I think there's actually like a really just low level thing to writing code that can be persuasive, I think is actually just a core property of being a good developer. Um, going less kind of into the code level, um, obviously communication is a, is a massive aspect of development. Um, I don't know any developers who don't speak to any other developers in their entire day. Even if remotely people are talking, people are pairing, there's a lot of communication back and forth. The, the thing I love about pairing is that it often brings about discourse and to me, again, an aspect of persuasion. We often have discussions around like, is that a good abstraction? No, that's not very good. We should do it like this. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. And you have a back and forth, which is ultimately one person trying to persuade the other about a different way of approaching the problem. And then that's not even going into the level of like we build for the real world and the real world often there's lots of people like customers and project managers and all these various people. And the only way we get things done is by talking to them and discussing about the things we should build and how we should build them. So, so you've, communication. You've, you've used the word persuasion a couple of times. How is persuasion different from winning, I guess? Yeah. Um, yeah. Winning is definitely the wrong frame of mind because that implies that when you go into a discussion, you won't lose and you won't lose anything to win. So I think that there's this one aspect of persuasion. You're trying to persuade one or someone's idea, but it doesn't imply that you're closed mind to alternatives while winning and kind of implies that you don't really care about the um, going back and forth and actually accepting you're wrong. So I, I think persuasion is slightly softer, but um, it is definitely in some ways akin to people will see it as I want to win. Um, I guess there's a higher level of realizing why you're doing things and the environment that you're working in, because if you go in the attitude to win, it's going to produce a pretty uncomfortable environment for everyone else and won't give people who are kind of maybe junior the chance to really feel like they're engaged in the process. So by persuasion, do you then mean in, 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 in terms of code, the, this concept of, of persuasive code has just made this the most interesting episode of the year. And, <laughs> and if you look at our, our episodes list, that's, that's a statement. Well, we've had a fantastic uh, uh, run this year. Can you give me an idea of what it means to write persuasive code or to persuade? Is it just persuading them that your naming and architecture is correct? Or is it more to do with having code that can communicate its intent well? Or is it something entirely different? I think, I think intent um, is a large part. Um, I think tests provide context so people can understand the context with it, with which you made the decisions about how you wrote the code. Because obviously the most challenging aspect in writing persuasive code is that the context when someone comes to it has changed. So understanding the kind of the context you're operating in, I think is done through examples, which are tests. I think um, like good naming conventions, those sort of things are kind of a really great at explaining why you're doing something. I guess there's also the accessibility. Um, if something is contained in huge layers of abstraction, it's very hard for someone to get a cohesive view of why you did something. Um, so there's again this argument against guess complexity there. There's, there's also um, something um, I, I kind of got inspired by for this. Um, I think it was Alistair Cockburn who defined this thing called the rhetorical programming language. Mm -hmm. And his, he actually wanted to create a new programming language where we get to capture all the emotions and feelings that go into when we write a bit of code. His oh, argument that would was be a that, bad idea for me. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure it's a good idea, but it's an, in, it's an interesting idea that when I write a piece of code, how much is like, you know, when I'm writing that method, does, does the person realize I was screaming and going like, this is horrible, I hate this infrastructure, I really don't mm -hmm. want to do it like this. Because I've seen enough... Thing, I've seen enough code to see where people have written methods called like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. I hate this, but I have to do it anyway. <laughs> All right, so it, do, it does it does bleed through. But um, I think that that's an interesting thing. And I, I don't know 
the answer to that or how important it is to capture those emotions. But I do feel that that's something that goes missed um, when you try to be persuasive about some piece of code. Mm -hmm. You had yeah. this part in your talk that I really liked where you said, you know, perhaps we're in a meeting or something or we're discussing some big change and everybody's arguing for for their, you know, way that we should do it and who wins and it was interesting you said, you know, it may just be the loudest or most passionate or person. It, it may not have anything to do with who has the better idea, right? That was a little yeah. scary, kind of. Yeah, it's very, very scary. It, it's that, um, what is it? It's, I think someone gave a quote, something like, um, it's not actually the idea that matters. It's the words that are used to express the idea. And mm -hmm. having the idea is only one part of it. And that, that exact thing, this, this was the thing I was kind of saying was boiling away in my mind that I've seen again and again where it's, it's really depressive to kind of like, you know, have a meeting and just feel like you have all these smart people in the room and you've spoken to them, they're great ideas and you end up doing something that half the room thinks is completely a bad idea, but it's kind of that, that loud voice. And, um, th that kind of, I guess was one of the things that inspired me to start kind of talking about it was like, I really wanted to see what I could do in the kind of companies that I worked in and where I was working to just empower and help see, see if I could guess help those people who had great ideas, but didn't feel very confident and weren't very good at expressing them. It's interesting when you look at personalities like DHH or Ryan Davis, these are, these are very confident people who are very certain of their ideas. Yeah. And I'll have um, a pick I'll have a pick related for that. Rather than getting into another one of Uncle Dave's interminable stories, I'll have a pick related to that at the end of the show. I read yeah. I read a blog post a few years ago, I think by Kathy Sierra, called something like when when the glib win, we all lose. And um it it wasn't necessarily about confidence, but about the choice of words. Um so sometimes people have like are are onto something but are unable to articulate it uh -huh. and they might sound clueless but they're not and then other people have all the good all the right words all the buzzwords and it seems like they have this logical progression of thought and they're very like forceful not necessarily in their confidence and in their presentation but it all sounds so good mm -hmm. but it not might not really be so smart and that's stuck with me yeah something i've i've wondered about that is um like how much in our work do we get to practice um speaking and expressing ideas um i've been spending the last three or four months writing um nothing but like closure which is like a lisp language and i've actually found my communication skills and my ability to express my ideas deteriorate because it's <laughs> less it's less is less kind of i guess less um literal it's not it doesn't read very effectively and it's in prefix wow. notation and it's actually made my communication skills worse and, and that i find interesting that the language that we use to write in might actually is kind of our main practice of communicating if that affects the way we communicate when we talk about ideas that is that astonishing is really interesting i just got done watching josh susser picked it a while back that this guy steal talk from Oopsla. I just watched that. Yeah, and it's this amazing talk about, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about how we build languages. And it's, uh, it's very interesting. It's about how, you know, you take the language and you, you change the language into basically the language of your problem and then you solve the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that's kind of, I think, what you're talking to. Ruby Ruby really lends itself to that, right? The way that we can manipulate Ruby to make it look like our problem, right? And then we mm. can solve the problem in its own terms. And uh, that that is a powerful form of communication. I, I hate to uh, dig against a language, especially closure, because I'm, I'm, it, it's next up on my list of languages to learn. And I, I think I can't take credit for this idea. I think it was Giles Boquette who said this originally, but uh, he referred to Lisp as an autistic language. 
And now it's, this is, I'm using this, I'm using autistic as a value neutral term here. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, it's we taught it or what, you know, whatever. Sorry for using the R word if that's offensive, but aut- autism is a, uh, is, is a brain organization structure in which it is very difficult to communicate your internal state to those around you. And lisp very much so is often considered an autistic language. It is brilliant. It is beautiful. It is intelligent and it cannot communicate to the reader what the heck it is trying to do. It is very hard for people to understand it unless they immerse themselves in it and completely enter its state. And it's kind of of ironic because, um, you know, the, the, the thing, the one thing that Lispers, uh, well, including guys deal have been talking about, you know, since forever is the idea of building up a language to address the problem at hand. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's interesting, Joseph, what you say about sort of losing your ability to, to speak about problems as a result of the programming language you're using. And that kind of relates right back to the, the Greeks and they're, they're reading aloud something that I've always found that I don't know whether I'm in the minority on this or, or not is I cannot learn anything. I cannot learn a programming language effectively until I know how to speak a line of code in it. Mm. Uh, and this is actually um, one reason that I've always had a very difficult time with, with mathematics, uh, you know, proper ma- mathematics is uh, not having a decent background in it, not having actually taken a lot of uh, math classes. I never knew how to say any of the symbols that were used, you know? So like I would see, you know, there's like, uh, e and then E with a little, with a little tick mark next to it. And I couldn't say that in my head. And so I, I just could not comprehend what that meant. And it's so hard to look that stuff up. And eventually somehow I managed to find out that that, that little tick mark is it usually called prime and that you say that mm-hmm. E prime. And then I could reason about what I was, what I was seeing. This is really interesting. It's the same thing when I'm pairing. Like, I, I find myself tongue-tied often when I'm trying to pair with something because I'm not sure how to express it's, it's um, you know, seven of the array of foods. Like, like the in, it's really hard to, to say some. One of the first things that I have to do in my pairing sessions is establish some language. I don't, I don't like, do this up front, but I do it as soon as I run into the need for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there are certain constructs that, that I have language for that, that I've heard from other people, uh, but that I, I try to establish so people know what I'm saying. And so I can, I can say these things fluently. Like if, if somebody is dereferencing an array or really any kind of, you know, a hash, anything that where you use the square brackets, I'm going to say, you know, foo subscript seven. Interesting. Or, I call or, that, I, I call that index into, you know, like, oh, uh, wow. Well, but how do you, but how do you fit? So th- how do you like, so that that seems like that goes backwards from the order of the tokens on the that you're seeing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And that's that's where that that really throws me off when I have to say it differently than the order of the tokens, especially if I'm trying to tell somebody how to write something. So uh, Avdi, you've just confessed that you you move your lips when you read code. Yeah, basically. Basically, yeah. that's exactly what I'm doing. And Sometimes I'll I'll abbreviate that to like foo sub 7. That's what you know, I do. And, I, and I, I I use sub yeah, and I communicate that to people, and then they get it, and then then we can move on. And and there are probably a few other things that we could talk about. There might be a, it, interesting to have a whole episode just talking about how do we talk about code. But but yeah, I, I, just, I cannot reason about this stuff until I know how how to speak a line of the code. I find um, with anything Boolean, I can never ever understand it without reading it out loud. It makes no sense to my brain whenever I see some Boolean conditions. Mm. I have to read it. That's interesting. So I'm an, an extremely visual visually oriented person like i don't like some people internally represent the world kinesthetically like as feelings or sensations other people represent them auditorially um and uh some people visually i actually represent the world as moving picture i like like movies and so for me when i read code it is really really critical that the layout of the code communicate to me the intent of the code and this is actually why I left Python, because the the enforced white space meant that if you had a small idea that was actually a little bit complicated, you could not make it small on the page. If you had to do five steps, you needed five lines of code to do it, even though it was really one operation. 
um, okay, yeah, you could wrap it up into a into a method call and call that, and then you'd have one line. But 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 you see the problem, right? Is is that the language couldn't shrink the way I needed it to visually, and that is really really interesting. Yeah, something I've been um, looking and writing about a little bit is uh, so I, I've I've kind of very into the literate programming of like your code reading, um, but then looking at something like closure um, where like closure values density of expression. And I always thought this was a bad thing, but someone gave the example of how um, in mathematics, we deal with an incredibly dense symbolic language, which we think in. And there's this idea that um, some people would say, I'm not sure if I'm sold yet, that with something like closure, where you have very dense expressions, you start to think in the syntax and form your constructs and your thoughts around the syntax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which requires a lot of immersion and requires you to be fluent in the language. But um, it's possible you could have thoughts, thinking, and closure that you might not have if you were to think them a higher level in English, which is kind of crazy. Doesn't that recurse back into rhetoric at almost like a fundamental level, like a fundamental disconnect of axia that, like in in Python, there, there shall not be magic. Right. Those, those, mm-hmm. if it takes you five, five different steps to do this thing, it should take you five lines of code. That's the Python way of thinking. I disagree with it. I fought. I lost. I went to Ruby. The closure values this extremely high density. In Ruby, we see a lot of people that are like, say things what they are, name things for what they are. And so, yeah, you would take those five lines of code and either string them out together in one very long line of code which visually tells people, hey, this is complicated. It's only one line of code, but it's five separate steps, and there's it's very complicated. You can skim over it because it's only one line, but you, if you're going to look at it, you've got to stop and really think. Or you extract it to a method. I mean, these are, these are like explicit, these are proper Ruby idioms uh, that you should use when you're programming in Ruby. And in Clojure, you don't, you know, there's no value for that, right? Just just use the expressions, just condense it down. And in Python, it's the other way. You must expand it out. Is that a difference in fundamental, is it axia or axioms? And and is that just wrong, whether the word is right or not? Say it again, sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. <laughs> um, is there a fundamental disconnect? Let me simplify the question. Is there a fundamental disconnect in the the way, say, Python people think, where explicit is always better, and the way closure people think, where very dense, possibly implicit expressions are valued to achieve high symbolic density that will then result in languages that can't really they're going to fight with each other no matter what because their fundamental axioms are different. Yeah, I guess um, it comes down to everyone's brain works slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And some people, I guess, find different ways of expressing things more natural. Um, So ultimately, the language creator dictates how they think everyone else should think. Mm -hmm. And people align themselves to what fits naturally for them, or sometimes forcing themselves to discover some new way of expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think any any way is necessarily better or worse. I think um, everyone can benefit from trying all of those languages and just understanding how that might fit the way they think about ideas. Because, like you said, I've done I've done Python, I've done Ruby, all these languages, and I have thoughts in Clojure that I'm like, ah, oh, that's the Ruby thing I would quite like to do here. So. Like I think all the learning all of those languages is ultimately the best way to discover which one fits in your head yeah. and to try and take some analogies from some into others. It may also explain a little bit why some languages seem to fit into certain niches, you know, like um, mm-hmm. uh, Ruby, you know, obviously web programming and, and stuff like that. Whereas a lot of times the functional languages, Erlang and such, are often used for server code or, or things like that, you know, it may be just because that language, you know, makes it easier to express those ideas. And I'm, I'm not saying I know that for sure, but just, you know, it, it's possible. Yeah, definitely. If, I mean, if you focus on something that deals massively with concurrency, closure becomes very natural to express those ideas. And concurrency can often cost readability. So there are some compromises there, I guess. So I want to take this in a slightly different direction for a bit. You had another part I really liked uh, when I was watching your talk, 
And that was, you talked about how when someone comes at you with uh, an argument or some form of persuasion, they're actually speaking from a lot of different places. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, I, it's been a while since I did that talk, so I I'll, I'll, may not reference directly the presentation. But um, when someone comes with you with an idea, there's, um, I guess, a lot of layers in how, how um, they've come to that idea, how they express that idea. It's hard sometimes to not get caught up in the emotion aspect of having an idea. Having an idea is very exciting. And, um, you know, I, th I think everyone has kind of burst out and said like, oh, that's an amazing idea. And you say it out loud and then you kind of embarrassingly look at yourself and realize that actually what you just said was complete rubbish. In, in terms of um, expressing an idea, um, there's lots of different ways people, I guess, people find more comfortable to um, explain an idea or how they go about talking about it. Um, that can be cultural. Different um, cultures might have different ways of expressing it. Um, some cultures might be more forthright, some may be more reserved. Um, I, I guess there's lots of different layers that come to someone um, just presenting an idea to themselves that's going on not just consciously but subconsciously as well which is the really hard part we can't always control what we're actually doing yeah i found that a little troubling too because then then you start thinking well did i go for this idea because it was a great idea or did i go for this idea just because that person was really passionate right and they sold me on their passion not their idea you know yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that's the thing. Is it like uh, emotions always beat words? Like that, if you get caught up in emotion, it's actually shown um, scientifically that uh, emotion overpowers aspects of the brain that suppress logical thinking. So, if you get very emotional about something, you really may not think it through as very logically, which scares me massively. But it's also the acceptance. I don't know. I think we have this idealistic view that we're intellectual beings that aren't. Um, that are purely based on reason and logic when there's a lot of layers going on that I think the best you can do is at least try and understand the various layers. So you're aware of the emotional aspects such that you might come back later and think like, okay, I'm just going to look through this again, or let, let's discuss this. And this is something that really bugs me is that often decisions are made at as like a single point in time. You have a meeting, you have a discussion and decisions made. So you're much more likely to get punished by getting caught up in emotions or someone's rhetoric. Well, if you have a discussion and then come back to it in two or three days with a like, okay, let's come to a conclusion, you've removed a large part of that emotional thing and enable people just to process in their own time and their own thoughts some of those ideas. Are you familiar with the book, uh, Thank You for Arguing? Um, yes. Or okay, so, you, and so you're also familiar then with the difference between forensic debate, ethical debate, and deliberative debate. Yes, um, I mainly know those by the tenses, but yeah. The yes, yes. So the the to 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 rephrase what you just said, if we're in a in a conversation where we are trying to deliberate and choose something, a direction that we should go in the future, slipping into present tense and getting tribal and emotional and saying "not in my backyard," <laughs> um, it poisons the conversation, right? Yeah, it, it's. Um I was an absolutely awful arguer. I was a totally stubborn and I, I, I never occurred to me that I always just got stuck in the past of like mm -hmm. ranting about all the past events. And yeah. this beautiful idea, as you kind of were saying, is like actually changing the tense changes the outcome mm -hmm. of the discussion. Yeah. And just that very little powerful idea of, um, you know, rather than getting too caught up in the past about what went wrong, it's like, you know, rather than like, what do we do wrong? It's like, well, how next time could we do better yeah. is a much more productive path um, for a conversation to go down. And yeah. if you look at most rants, it's all about the past and very rarely about the future. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at politics and drama, um, it's all present tense. Yes, all, all present tense, very caught up in the moment and hence emotion is much mm -hmm. stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's unfortunately where rhetoric has a very bad name from the Horrific use of it by politicians. Yeah. Uh, Katrina and James, do you want to call us out? Are we are we speaking a secret language here, or is that something that people will be able to follow along with what we just said? I actually was going to ask if you could um, go through each tense, give it a name, um, say 
like how it's used and what the consequences are. Joe, do you want to do that one? Sure. Okay. So um, I, 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 I tend to just use the um, like so past, present, and future. So the past will be an example of let, let's use a coding example. Let's use a real example. Um, so talking about the past would be we were having a discussion about um, how slow our tests were. And everything was focused in like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. That was so wrong. And like, why did you do that? And why did we make that decision? And we got very much caught up in a cycle of what I guess is blame. You're looking to kind of punish someone or shift well, blame, blame shifts into present tense, right? Blame forensic is often. Oh, oh, no, no, you're right. You're past. right. You're yeah, right. Blame is, forensic, blame is, is, forensic is determining why something happened. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a uh, discussion of values, which about the present. Um, so the present is, um, it doesn't usually indicate a outcome as such. It's usually about discussing the immediate moment. Um, so let, again, let's think of a good example. So it's, 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 ethical, right? it's, tri it's ethical, tribal, anything you hear that's political speech is ethical. Uh, anything like, like pretty much anytime somebody gets angry when talking about, say, diversity is ethical mm -hmm. debate. Um, the, the point of ethical debate is to identify tribes, um, and, and mm -hmm. say, we are mini test. We value small, simple, uh, and short, or we are cucumber. We value a robust DSL that can do everything we need. Yeah. And the problem these often enter like binary, like, uh, you're either with me or you're against me. Yes. Which is why that can be dangerous as well. You know, like I believe in testing all the time. If you say like, well, no, you, we separate. There's no yes. like compromise, no way of actually coming to some like joint conclusion, Yeah, which nicely brings us on to the choice and the future. Um, so discussing the future tense is where we make, um, where we, we de make decisions. And, you know, often in these sort of discussions and um, you can get kind of boiled down and caught down and, it's, it's almost sometimes important just to make a decision rather than like debate for too long. So at some point you have to transition to what are we going to do next? Yeah. Which is often like, like this is where actually it's a really great way for things to end out positively, where if you have to go away feeling like you actually can do something. So it sounds like whenever I want to quit the internet, it's always some debate that has spiraled into some sort of um, just horrible morass of, I guess it's both blaming and sort of a tribal, um, this is who I am, that's not who you are, so we don't belong in the same, in the same camp or something. Is the, so it sounds like by change, by using the future tense, just kind of technically choosing to use the future tense, you might be able to change the spiral. Yes. I think, um, like this, this is key. We can't see each other. And in these examples, we're talking about people are communicating by typing um, because you can't read the emotions that are in people's texts. And if you were sitting in some front of someone, you can read so much in their face. You can read so many emotions. You can instinctively know what they're about to say, like their emotive state, which enables you to communicate so much more effectively. When, when we're talking about blog posts, like comments, you, you lose that context. So it's even more important not to get caught up in a spiral and focus on like more positive future outcomes. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a beautiful judo move that I think everybody should know. Uh, it's in the opening section of the book. Thank you for arguing, which Joe, if you don't pick it, I will at the end of the episode, the, <laughs> he, he, the dad walks into the bathroom and he goes to brush his teeth and there's no toothpaste and he screams through the whole house. Who used all the toothpaste and didn't put out a new tube? And from downstairs, his high school-aged son replies, That's not the point, Dad. The point is, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> and he just, he stopped and just started laughing. He's like, I just totally got judoed out of uh, forensic past tense into future deliberative. And the, the important thing about deliberative is you cannot fix blame. You can't be there fixing blame. You have to be seeking a solution. Yeah. What are you talking about? That kid is so grounded for talking back. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and at one point he ended the, the dad ends a debate by switching to ethical, um, by basically saying, because I'm your father and I said so. Uh. <laughs>
yeah, kids, kids are the best education and rhetoric, definitely. They're, they're the best users of emotion because when they're young, they haven't fully developed the concept of morals. And, you know, it's like, if you love me, daddy, you'll do that. It's the classic rhetoric. That's awesome. So what else from your talk should we, uh, should we hit on? What were the other important parts? Gosh, um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in uh, something that I think was the reason that a large part of Rails was successful and that bombards us with every technical choice we make about the rhetoric of tools that we use and the way they sell themselves to us. I don't believe there isn't, there isn't a single framework that doesn't use some form of rhetoric to convince you it's a good idea. If you go and look at the Rails homepage, all the, all the words used are all positive things. I think it's like, you know, don't make web development painful. All this is bold in rhetoric. And I, I wonder how much of which tech tool we use is affected by how convincing something is about persuading us through its website, through the way it talks about the tool, through showing us screencasts. Cause I definitely feel like my choice to use Rails and Ruby was probably being persuaded by some of the stuff I saw in DHH's original website. And that, that was rhetoric being used. That's a really good point. I, that, that sometimes almost makes me a little bit mad uh, because I know that I'm swayed by really good copy and uh, particularly really good web design on a, a, like a project homepage. And it kind of makes me mad that I am because as a programmer, I really want to be swayed entirely by technical, you know, technical concerns. Yeah, definitely. But then this, this is the danger of um, if you, if you don't, ex if you don't under try to understand and accept the fact that there's a lot going on in your subconscious and about emotion, then you're actually far more susceptible to it. If you actually understand what's going on, you might be better at reasoning. Yeah. So I think it, it's, it's an important thing to, I know it, it, it's this horrible thing of, I want us to be intellectual beings based purely on logic. I'd love that, but um, mm -hmm. I recognize that I'm not, and I recognize that I get angry and that I get kind of convinced by a website having a really nice layout. It makes me feel slightly more warm emotions towards the tool. And I think at least understanding those things um, in a large part helped me maybe deal with it better. Yeah, it's still, I mean, you're, I've, I've seen science that says that, that, that will, you know, the explaining the, the biases to someone will, uh, help them avoid them. But I've also seen science that says that, but that's also not completely effective. You still have to correct for it, even if you understand the bias. Like understanding the bias is not a total proof against it. Oh, completely. Yeah. I think it's a uh, thinking fast, thinking slow where, um, they have, um, tests where they found out that knowing that you were biased didn't help you didn't help you prevent yourself from being biased. And that was just the, the nature of um, not really understanding your subconscious fully. There are kind of some tools that can help with this a little. One that I'm a little obsessed with recently is the um, uh, Six Thinking Hats, uh, which is uh, from Edward de Bono, I think. And um, it's this idea that if we're all together, say, in... in a meeting and we're, we're talking about some idea, we can analyze it from these known angles uh, using these different hats. So I, w I won't give them all, but like the white hat is the, you know, the data and logic. So we can look at, you know, what does the data say? And the red hat is emotion, you know, intuition, gut reaction kind of stuff. So, you know, well, what do our instincts tell us? Is this a good idea? And then black hat is the problems with the idea. And uh, green hat is the creative side. Let's forget about all the problems and just say we went with all this, this idea, you know, what are all the things we could do off of it? So by controlling the meeting this way, you, you can, you can narrow, help people focus in on just this one area. Well, we're not trying to use emotion right now or, it's okay that we're bringing up problems right now because that's the hat we're wearing, the black hat, which is where we bring up all the problems with the idea. And, and so by just kind of focusing in, but even in like, I, I think it's a tool for, you know, meeting brainstorming kind of thing, but, uh, even just in one-on-one -on -one communication, I've used it a couple of times recently. Um, you know, saying something like, um, you know, uh, well, from a white hat point of view, I would think, but from a red hat point of view, 
it's kind of a shorthand to separate out what we talked about earlier, how you, you make your idea, your argument is bundled up with all these different things, your passion, your, uh, you know, the data you have, your context, basically. And it helps you separate out those various contexts for mm -hmm. someone else, right? Well, speaking emotionally, I feel bad about this one. But, you know, looking at the data, hmm, seems good. You know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I'd, I'd wonder um, what happens when people wear different hats and that um, the main way I've used the Bono's hats is also that everyone is wearing the same hat at the same time. So when everyone is being like everyone is being critical, it's okay to be critical because everyone is being critical. Only people are only allowed to say critical things. So it would be interesting if 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 you have that situation and you have two people and one is wearing the emotive hat and one is wearing the critical the, the the kind of the critical or logical hat. It would be interesting how that might play out. Exactly, or even just having them tell you, "I this is my opinion while wearing my logical hat." I feel like that gives me so much information that I didn't otherwise have, right? They're saying, oh, yeah. the data pushes them this way. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess, we would. how would you think about always knowing what state you were in, I guess? Would you always know? I almost never know. Yeah. yeah. Like, I am so confused about how I'm feeling about things. I often, I often feel like I have, I have some idea of of what what I think the data is, but then I have all of these like vague feelings and I, I kind of can't even tell if if I'm, you know, happy or depressed sometimes. It's just so confusing. That's right, right? It's like our instincts. It's that, you know, if you've programmed for a long time, you have instincts that steer you away from things that are generally harmful, right? And yeah. Those just pop up, and we have trouble articulating them or explaining why we're thinking that way. But it's that instinct we have that that protects us a little bit. But of course, it could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. It's the someone talks about the phases of learning, and the problem with experts is the, the expertise has reached the subconscious level, so you can't actually explain sometimes why you're doing the ideas which came from that experiment they did with um, pilots, where pilots had to write down for their juniors exactly how to do their job. And all the people just following those instructions did absolutely terribly because there was stuff running in the subconscious of the pilot that they just couldn't explain or write down. Mm -hmm. I believe you're talking about the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. I actually read one version of that pilot experiment where where expert pilots, by writing down all of the steps, were able to improve the output of of more junior pilots. But when other experts followed the directions um, precisely, they did a lot, a lot worse than if they hadn't been following instructions. Yeah, this is something that I'm again, like I'm I'm still torn on. We kind of come down to this. Um, I guess persuasion by authority, which is, is the nice term of it in rhetoric, but um, when you're learning and you're learning from someone who's more experienced than you, sometimes you need to just do what they tell you to do to just discover for yourself all the various contexts and how, how that works. But the, the difficult thing is there comes some transition point where you've actually got to start questioning and say, well, maybe I know this well enough now that I can not just assume that you're right and actually start to question it. And when you have like a development environment with junior developers, like more experienced developers, like there's a really interesting interplay in when can you just trust that someone knows more than you and you should just do what they say versus, you know, always questioning what they're saying and trying to come up with your own ideas. I think there's a huge danger in with very, very smart people who know very little about something. I think a lot of people will tend to not trust people like they'll tend to want to ask all the questions even though they don't have enough context available to them to even ask the questions or understand the hedges understand like the the reservations that someone might have in the ex explanation there's uh, a, a great talk i oh i will try to find it for the show notes but the the point that he ended up with was he basically stood up and said, um, some people should not have, some smart people should not have opinions about certain things. My opinion on quantum physics should not ever matter. 
because I don't know enough about quantum physics to have an authoritative opinion on quantum physics. Um, now he was arguing uh, a fairly controversial social point, um, and he was using quantum physics as his example. But yeah, there's, there's, there's that type of, you know, if I can't reason through it in my head, then it must not be true. And that's provably false, right? There, because there's other people that are smarter than you at everything. On the other hand, there's this notion of the smartest people in the room are the ones who are always asking questions. And it's, uh, I wonder if there's a distinction there in the type of questions you ask. You know, there's, there's challenging questions like prove this to me. And then there's like learning questions like, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Can you tell me how this interplays with that? Yeah, th- that's uh, interesting, especially when you think about um, presentations at conferences in that often, and I find this as well, like when you, when you time when questions are allowed, I often feel compelled to ask questions just to show that I was paying attention and not actually in any way to, as you said, any of those reasons about learning or anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I, I, I kind of like it. It's just difficult for a presenter, but when people are asking questions throughout the presentation, it's genuinely because they either want to challenge or either want to learn. Yeah. So kind of there's something artificial about kind of limiting it all to the very end where suddenly everyone's, you know, just wants to either show that they were paying attention or kind of refer to something that was in the past. Yeah. That's a really great point, and it's one of the reasons why questions at the end are almost always terrible, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because you'll ask a question from the first three minutes of the talk, right? Yeah, or just something that's so specific it doesn't apply to the other 200 people sitting in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, we've been at this for a while. Anything else we need to touch on before we get to picks? <laughs> yeah, I want to throw this one back to Joe and say, Joe, I'm sorry, is it Joe or Joseph? Uh, Joseph's good. Sorry, Joseph. I've been calling you Joe this whole time. Um, so I want to throw this back to Joseph in terms of coding. Out of all of that we've talked about rhetoric and persuasion, and, and, and certainly we've talked about the community and, you know, being, you know, persuading people in the community. Do you think there is a place for rhetoric and persuasion in code when the literally the only way in which I can communicate with you is in the source code that I have written in the past that you are now reading in the present. Yeah, I, I definitely think um, rhetoric plays a key part in that. There's a lot of other aspects. There's there's a lot of um, logic and analysis and domain knowledge and all these things, but often I see a bit of code and Sometimes code will invoke an emotion in me. Sometimes I'll see some beautiful code. I, I consider beauty to be an emotion and I would be, wow, that's, that gives me an overwhelming sense of like, I'm happy, emotional mm-hmm. input, which is going to change the way I think about that code. Mm-hmm. Beautiful code is some, is an emotion that is positive and more likely to keep. Um, I always aim to try and produce beautiful code. It's incredibly hard. I think recognizing rhetoric as a part of writing code helps you just get a little bit more meta about being more literal, about writing for others, not writing for yourself. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, understanding rhetoric as you read code might help you in where you see a bit of code and be like, God, that's horrible. I hate that. That's so horrific sort of thing. And it's like, well, what context were they operating in? And again, try and what we're talking about emotions, not let emotions carried away and and ver- various other kind of aspects that kind of overwhelm us, our subconscious, just knowing at least to get a little bit more meta about it, I think is a good step to yeah. helping write better code. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. And the Seattle style of method definition is rhetoric. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it, it, it absolutely takes a stance, doesn't it? <laughs> and, it and actually a lot funnier had Aaron been on the show when I said that. I, I violently disagreed uh, with basically all of the tenets of mini test until two things happened. Um, I went to Mountain West RubyConf and I sat next to Ryan Davis. Um, and I found out that while he is very, uh, I don't want to get dogged down into defining terms, but he's a very black and white thinker. And um, usually when I encounter those people, they are often not as smart as they could be, but he is wicked smart. And he was able to back up everything, not just in terms of like very fast, hard debate, but also in very open, creative interplay of, well, but then there's this and there's this and there's this. And the second thing that happened was I watched the guy steel talk on growing a language. And I realized something that uh, Ryan had not been communicating to me, at least, um, is that Minitest is designed to grow. If there's something that's missing from it, you should grow it. 
And that definitely is a rhetorical stance, right? That, um, I mean, he's, he's very strongly opinion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when you sit down and talk with him, you can really come back and, and say, wow, he's really thought this through and he's actually got a very good solution. Maybe I should explore this and get more fluent with mm-hmm. it. And I did not have that feeling until I met him and watched guys talk simultaneously. It's a great point. I think any sufficiently complicated architecture has embedded in it um, people's opinions about how it should be used. And yeah. often that is telling you the way you should behave yeah. with your code. Ooh, yes. That's a really good point. I feel that with things like um, Rescue and Sidekick, you know, where they they tell me to define a class and set up some worker. And and obviously that works in a large majority of the cases with the Rails app. That's why they, they do it that way. But sometimes I feel that I, I don't want them to tell me how to do it. Because, uh, for example, I'm, I'm breaking off some separate service. I won't have that class in the, in, in the same class in both places. And I would rather just shove something in a queue and watch it pop out the other side, you know? And I, I sometimes feel the bonds of that. They're telling me how I should write this background code, and I don't want them to. Uh, in Sidekick's defense, they made some changes after my complaining about this very issue. So, good uh, I mean. It totally fits the golden path idea of Rails, right? Rails tells you how you should write a web app. And if you deviate from the golden path, i.e. the way you should build a Rails app, you'll often think of yourself as being wrong when that's not necessarily the case. And to me, that's what's happened over the last year or two of people actually understanding some of the problems with Rails. Yeah. All right. Shall we do some picks? Sure. All right, David, go for it. Okay. I had no picks going into this episode. Now I have four. I'm going to try to move quickly. <laughs> the first one is Thank You for Arguing uh, by Jay Heinrichs. This is a book about uh, debate and rhetoric. He goes over these uh, forensic, ethical, deliberative debate, past tense, present tense, future tense. He gives specific rules for detecting what tense somebody is using, um, how to tell when somebody's cheating, in a rhetoric style, like if you listen to talk radio, they claim to be doing forensic debate, but they are always doing ethical debate. They, they, they absolutely are deceptive. All political speech claims to be forensic or deliberative, but it's always uh, ethical. Yeah, I, I, I have to keep moving. Uh, I, I could go for hours about that. Thank you for arguing by Jay Heinrichs is, is my first and most important pick. Um, my second pick is um, Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. This is a book about when somebody just hits you square between the eyes, um, you know, sucker punches you with, with just a, you know, a huge ethical smack while you're trying to do future or past tense. And all of a sudden you get this huge adrenaline rush to your brain and your thought centers shut down. This is an entire book for stopping that in your brain, defusing it, getting oxygen back to your brain and getting the conversation back on track. It's, it's, it's a way to when somebody withdraws from the pool of meeting, meaning or charges into the pool of meeting, like a meet pool of meaning, sorry, uh, or charges in with a bulldozer trying to drive you out of it how to either bring them back by making them feel safe or push them back by gently asserting your own safety. It's a fantastic book for uh, when you need to argue with somebody about something that's important to you uh, and you know you're going to get emotional. Um, It's it's how to keep keep a clear head. Um, There's a companion volume to it. This is pick number three, Crucial Confrontations. It's the sequel. Um, this is tools for resolving broken promises, violated expectations, and bad behavior. Um, this is the follow-up to crucial conversations, and this is the this is the version of the book when you need to drag somebody kicking and screaming into the pool of meaning, and they don't want to go anywhere near it because they want to just avoid the uh, the conversation entirely. And the last one which is something that I referenced uh, early on in the, the, the show is the bromeliad trilogy. This is uh, probably one of the most important set of books that I'm going to read to my kids. They are by Terry Pratchett. Um, it's a fun little fantasy thing about uh, gnomes, little tiny, you know, critters that run around and they're tiny. And um, the reason that I, I want to read these to my kids is that the moral of this trilogy is that you have to learn to think 
because only by learning to think can you learn to think even bigger thoughts. And uh, the first, the the reason I thought of it is that one of the key morals in the first book is uh, the hero gets some advice as he's as the leader is dying and he's being handed the mantle of leadership, and he's the skeptic and the doubter. The leader turns to him and he says, uh, "The most important thing you need to know about being a leader is that it's more important to be certain than right." And then he winks at him and he says, "Being right also helps." And uh, the second book is uh, a, a fantastic uh, argument of uh, uh, feminism and uh, what to do with uh, boneheaded men um, in a patriarchal society. I mean, the, and these books are for like six year olds. So, I mean, they're just it's just some fantastic stuff to, uh, to to lay down on your kids. I can't wait to to have kids so that I can read these to them. And um, that was kind of long, but it was four books. And those are my picks. All right. Uh, let me start with just a quick tool pick. Uh, the other day, I was digging through some old videos of mine, and um, uh, in order to to do some stuff with them, and uh, discovered that I had been apparently fiddling with my screen recording settings at one point, and I had a video which was twenty minutes long and seventy five gigabytes, and uh, that's awesome. For <laughs> I don't know what it must have been set to, like you know the least the least compression possible or possibly like add more add more data just because compression level but uh fortunately uh i had handbrake installed on the com- on my video editing computer handbrake is a great transcoding application that turns videos from one format into videos in another format uh mostly optimized towards turning them into smaller videos and you know it has like um presets for various uh mobile devices and I fed it into Handbrake, and it tore through those 75 gigs very quickly and turned it into a nice, like, I don't know, 40 megabyte MP4 file or something. So Handbrake is a handy tool to have around uh, if you ever want to transcode videos. Uh, for a less technical pick, uh, funny Dave brought up ta- uh, Terry Pratchett. I'm sure I've mentioned my love of Terry Pratchett a few times on this show, and I just want to say... Uh, if you have Netflix, there are a number of mm. ter- of Terry Pratchett Terry Pratchett movies or series on Netflix. And the interesting thing about these, so these are all these are all uh, English productions, as far as I know, and and they're all kind of straight to straight to TV things. They weren't things that that went to theaters. They're usually done as serials, you know, just like a few episodes, like two or three episodes, and usually. Straight to TV version of a fantasy novel is code for my eyes are bleeding. This is so horrible. Please make it stop. And amazingly, amazingly enough, these these films have been really, really lovingly done. They're very high quality productions. Uh, the acting is all great. A lot of great actors in them. And uh, the effects are startlingly good. Uh, just, and, and as a Terry Pratchett fan, you know, there's, there, there's really nothing in them that, that makes me angry because they just got it all wrong. Uh, so really it's, they're kind of the, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings movies of direct to video fantasy adaptation. A couple examples, uh, that you can find in Nef- on Netflix are going postal, uh, Hogfather and the color of magic. I'm not sure if there are any others yet but they're all quite good so i had the actual opposite experience um because i read all of them in in a voice in my head and when i watched the movies like they got everything wrong i would love for a listener who has not read pratchett to go watch one or two of these and then come back and say now i can't wait to read the books or oh my gosh i'm never going to read them and that sounds like a job for me. Hey. you're up katrina christopher lee uh is death which so, is wonderful. Yes, he is wonderful. Katrina, your picks. I have two today. Uh, one is called The Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense, uh, written by Suzette Elgin oh, Hayden. Yeah. Um, she's a sci-fi author and also um, wrote a whole series of books, but I'm, um, I think just one would be enough. It seems like every book is the same book over and over again. But um, The Gentle Art of Ver- Verbal Self-Defense goes through a series of patterns of typical um, verbal sense, like verbal violence, and then picks it apart and tells you why, 
I guess the bottom line is why you're not supposed to um, respond to the bait, but respond to the underlying accusation that is unstated. And it shows you a lot of different patterns of how to do that. And um, it can be really helpful if you do experience that type of um, verbal violence on a regular basis. The other pick is an article I came across recently. It's called Procrastination is Not Laziness. Uh, and this is where, you know, in which Katrina has an epiphany. So basically, I realized that I'm neurotic. And this explains it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a relief. So it's a really well-written article. Um, and the money shot for me was that a neurotic procrastinator perceives error as being a reflection of their character. So anyway, my picks. Uh, I've got a couple. Um, we've been kind of light on code recently, so here's some awesome code-heavy blog posts. Uh, super heavy. First, there's this awesome one from Aaron Patterson, uh, who was on again recently, about class eval versus defined method. And this is awesome because it's one of those things I've believed forever and ever and ever, and I was basically wrong. So if you like me, thought that Rails uses class eval all over the place uh, because it's better, it ends up performing better, you're pretty much wrong, too. Um, wow. it, uh, there is a tiny bit of speed boost in one case uh, that goes away as soon as you apply any amount of real work, and you pay a whole bunch of penalties for that uh, little speed boost. So if this kind of thing interests you, it's a really great read, uh, kind of eye-opening. Uh, and then another article along similar lines came out just uh, a couple of days ago, and Josh Susser uh, showed me this one, so it seems fitting to uh, pick it while he's not here. This is about MRI's method cache and how it works, and it basically explains how the method cache works and um, what that means for your code. For example, anytime you type openstruct.new, you blew MRI's entire method cache. Wow. Um, so uh, it's very fascinating, uh, interesting read, and it actually ends in some patches uh, that would improve MRI's method cache. So uh, hopefully those will get applied and we'll see some uh, good changes in there in the future. But it's interesting because you can learn how this stuff works. So two kind of deep down under the hood, uh, neat posts. And those are my picks. Joseph, what have you got? Uh, so my first one, I guess, um, will be the contempts, uh, the contempt page, um, which is a collection of user net um, conversations about some of the most respected leading lights in programming, shouting and ranting about the evils of programming languages, OS, XML, computing, everything. <laughs> it's a fascinating insight into how smart people can be so wrong. Um, yeah, um, my second one would be um, uh, the your, your logical fallacy is. Um, there's a free like poster you can print out which lists all the um, logical fallacies um, I love putting these up on the wall in the office just so people can read through them and browse. And again, it's one of those things of just seeing what the fallacies are can be really helpful in improving and helping discussion be more productive. Um, my final two, um, I guess it's a similar book, but it's called A Winning Arguments from Aristotle to Obama, Everything You Need to Know About the Art of Persuasion. Uh, this for me was my, I guess, my epiphany of um, understanding rhetoric, and it's a really um, good introduction to a lot of the ideas, and it, it takes a lot of the Greek ideas and explains them in far more accessible ways. And my final pick... Um, again, thinking more about how we work as machines. Um, it's an old one, but I think it's probably the book that's changed me as a developer the most is um, Refactoring Your Wetware. It's an old pragmatic one, but um, thinking about rhetoric and thinking about how your brain works, I think it's one of the most important books in getting how you work as a machine. And by understanding that, you can actually improve the effectiveness of that machine.
And I think that's pretty awesome. And that's my picks. Those that's are awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Joseph, for coming and talking to us. What a great discussion. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, can I throw yeah, thanks a lot. Not really not really a pick, but a, a, a little bit of homework for the listeners. Sure. Go back to Josh's pick of Guy Steele's talk growing a language. Your homework is to watch the first ten minutes. Um yeah, the, the bomb the bomb drops in the first ten minutes. You will end up watching the entire rest of the talk. I watched it twice, and the second time I watched it so that I could syntax check his entire talk. I thought I had caught him in a syntax error and was going to brag about it, and I watched it a second time, and I'm like, ah, oh, darn it, he caught it. Yeah, the um, I have to second that one. Uh, Josh way undersold that pick, and, and he really yes. sold it uh, well when he made it, but uh, I did not get how eye-opening it was. And you start off watching that talk, and you're like, What's going on here? Something mm-hmm. is strange. He's talking funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and we can't say anymore. We'll give it away. Just keep going. It is a really great yeah. talk. Just 10 minutes. Yep. And then and then you'll lose an hour. <laughs> so, yes. Um, well, awesome. This has been our episode on rhetoric. You can, uh, of course, find us on iTunes, leave a review. Um, and uh, that's it. We will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody.